Let's start by a prayer, if you don't mind. I kind of need it. Lord Jesus, I ask for your help in tackling this very difficult topic. I ask that you would open our hearts to your word and to your Holy Spirit's conviction, because I'm sure there's probably not one of us who doesn't have to deal with this right now or hasn't had to deal with this in the recent past or will not have to deal with this in the near future. So, help us, O Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Nine years ago, I talked about forgiveness, and um, I started with this story, and I'm going to start with it again, because most of you weren't even around nine years ago. And if you were around nine years ago, it's a good story. I'm not going to get super specific because, uh, you know, that wouldn't be very nice of me or very prudent of me, but I'll make myself look like a jerk. So there was a person, there was a guy that I felt it hurt me very, very badly, not just me, but in some ways my whole family, and um, and I was struggling. I mean, I would pray what they call at seminary imprecatory prayers. Now, imprecatory psalms are the psalms where David is asking for God to vanquish his enemies. So, in other words, I was praying for bad stuff to happen to this person because I thought the situation warranted that. I wanted this person to suffer the full consequence of what he had done to me. And uh, I was sure that I was in the right and that he was in the wrong. Um, if you did a survey, 99.9% of the people you would survey would say, yes, Mike, you are in the right, and, and he is obviously in the wrong. But um, there wasn't much I could do about it. I think human reactions are like fight or flight normally, right? So fighting really wasn't an option, so flight seemed to be my best recourse. I just avoided him and prayed for God to do unto him the way that I would. Um, but, you know, we went through this sermon series... And I knew that there had to be a, another way to deal with this. A third way, so to speak. Fight, flight, and I thought, hmm, forgiveness. That's another F. That probably fits in there someplace. Uh, but I'm not ready because I'm hurt so badly. And my family's hurt so badly. And so I just struggled with this, right? All the way through the sermon series. And it was uh, the end of 2009, 
and I was their preaching team. Preaching team is a bunch of these pastor guys that I've met with for at this point probably you know a dozen years, and uh, one of them is Les Avery, who is a retired Presbyterian pastor. At that point, probably. I don't know, almost 80. And so we got down with preaching team, going over our sermons, that kind of thing was great. We share our lives. And about five minutes before I'm ready to go, I've got an appointment. I've got to meet somebody. Les says, oh, Mike, how are you doing with that guy? Have you forgiven him yet? I said, no, Les, you know that I'm struggling with that. He says, Mike, because you know, and then he points his bony finger in my face, and he says, you know that if you don't forgive him, then God's not going to forgive you. But yeah, Les, I know this. You're pissing me off right now, Les. You know I'm struggling with this. i got to go someplace. And then the other three guys, Steve Garcia, Jim Emig, and John Eider, they just jump on as well. And they're going, yeah, Mike. I mean, you're a Christian pastor. You're supposed to set an example for forgiveness. And I'm going, leave me alone, gentlemen. I am trying, but it's difficult. I'm struggling with this. And so I get in my car. I'm so angry, I can't even drive. I pull over to the side of the road. I start screaming at God because I know He's behind all this. And I'm saying, you know I'm not ready. Why are you doing this to me? And of course, after you get done with that kind of display of emotion, there's a quietness that happens in your soul. And the Holy Spirit just says, you're ready. You're like a football player who doesn't know how far he can push himself. You can push yourself farther. And those guys were your coaches. Okay. The moment of obedience was there. Either I followed Jesus because he was going in a certain direction, or I let him go out of my sight. So I got up my cell phone and I texted this guy. And I said, Hey, I think it's time we talk. When would you like to meet? No response. 24 hours goes by. No response. 48 hours goes by, no response. And then the Holy Spirit whispers to my ear, why don't you text him again? Okay, fine. Man of faith and power right here. Uh, so I get up my cell phone and I text him one more time, same thing, said, when would you like to meet? And so... About 24 hours after that, I get a response, okay, let's meet. And so, we decide to meet in this park. I mean, it's December, but it's sunny, it's Denver, but it's cold because it's Denver. And so, I don't know if he's shaking and shivering because he's afraid, but... Um, we get together, and um, I start out by saying, listen, I'm going to forgive you of what you've done to me and to my loved ones. 
because I'm a man who's been forgiven much. It would be wrong of me to hold something against you when I've been forgiven by God. But before I forgive you, I want you to know what it is I'm forgiving you for. And so I just started listing all the things, all the consequences of his actions in my family's life and in my life. And when I got done, I just said, I want you to know that I forgive you. And he responded well. In terms of, I guess, accepting the forgiveness. It wasn't exactly what I wanted. I mean, I, <laughs> it was like, I'm sorry that I hurt you, but I'm really not sorry about what I did. And <clears throat> so that was the best I was going to get. And I thought, okay, well, that's where you are. I can understand why you would think that way. I don't agree with it, but I can understand it. And then the Holy Spirit was pushing me even farther, so I said, look, so forgiveness has got to look like something. And so here's the deal. I mean, you were not welcomed in my house before. You are now welcome to come into my house. As a matter of fact, come on over on Christmas. We'll have a present for you. And... If there are special dinners, you know, we'll invite you to come over then too. And that's kind of where we left it. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, before you start down the road to revenge, you should dig two graves. You know, you just don't forgive the other person. You also forgive people for your own sake. Because unforgiveness leads to bitterness. And, and bitterness is a poison that you drink hoping that somebody else is going to die. The uh, story we're going to go over today really is all about forgiveness. It's uh, the life of Joseph the patriarch, the son of, of Isaac. So you had Abraham and you had Isaac and then... Um, you have uh, Jacob, I'm sorry, and then Joseph. So this is Jacob's son, Joseph. Jacob is the one who had two wives. Fran talked about him last week. Joseph is one of his sons, one of his 12 sons. And the life of Joseph spans like 13 chapters in the book of Genesis, so we're not going to be able to go through it. But um, I think that the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible does a pretty good job of... Um, Summarizing it, so I'm going to read this to you as soon as I pull it up on my iPad <laughs> because I forgot to do that before I started. Okay. Um, there it is. Please forgive me for not having this ready. Okay, Jacob had 12 sons, but of all his sons, Joseph was his favorite. One day, Jacob gave Joseph a splendid new robe. 
It was beautiful and rich with all the colors of the rainbow, but it made Joseph's brothers jealous. They wanted rich rainbow robes too. Then to make matters worse, Joseph kept on having these special dreams. I dreamed I was the greatest. I was king, Joseph told his brothers, and you all bowed down to me. Now I'm sure you know, even if Joseph did not know this, that telling your brothers things like that isn't a very good idea. Joseph's brothers hated him even more. They wanted to kill Joseph and his dreams. And one day, that's exactly what they tried to do. They tore Joseph's rainbow robe off of him and sold him to slave traders for 20 pieces of silver. The traders took Joseph to Egypt, and they made him into a slave. The brothers went home and lied to their father, telling him that Joseph was dead. That's the end of the dreamer, they thought. But they were wrong. God had a magnificent dream for Joseph's life. And even when it looked like everything had gone wrong, God would use it all to help make the dream come true. God would use everything that was happening to Joseph to do something good. Meanwhile, though, things were not looking good for Joseph in Egypt. He was far from home and from his dad. Then he got blamed for something he didn't do, and even though he had done nothing wrong, he was punished and thrown in jail. But God had not left Joseph. One night, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had a scary dream about thin cows gobbling up fat cows. What on earth did it mean? He didn't know. But Joseph was a dream expert, so Pharaoh sent for him. It means a famine is coming, Joseph explained. There won't be enough food. Pharaoh was so pleased by Joseph's skill that he immediately took Joseph out of jail and made him a prince. Now back home, Joseph's brothers had run out of food and everyone was hungry. God's special family was in danger. If they didn't get food soon, they would starve to death. So Joseph's brothers traveled to Egypt to buy food. They came and they knelt before the new prince. His brothers didn't know that the prince was Joseph, but Joseph knew who they were. Joseph's dream, the one about his brothers bowing down to him, was coming true. It's me, Joseph cried. When they saw it was Joseph, his brothers were afraid. They had wronged Joseph. They had sinned and they knew it. Now Joseph would certainly punish them. But Joseph looked at his brothers and his eyes filled with tears. Even though his brothers had hurt him and hated him and wanted him dead, in spite of everything, he couldn't stop loving them. His heart, which they had broken, filled up with love. And Joseph forgave them. Joseph threw his arms around them. Don't be afraid, he said. Behind what you were doing, underneath everything that was happening, God was doing something good. God was making everything right again. Joseph didn't punish them. He rescued them. He brought God's special family to live safely with him in Egypt. One day, God would send another prince, a young prince whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father his brothers would hate him and want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened to this young prince, even the bad things, to do something good, to forgive the sins 
of the whole world. Turn it back on later. All right. Pretty good summary, I think, of the story in Genesis. Let's go to the real Bible and take a look. Chapter 45, starting in verse 1. We'll just take a little bit of it. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Okay. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh and lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, and grandchildren, your flocks and your herds, and all you have. I will provide for you there, because five years of famine are still yet to come. Otherwise, you and your households and all who belong to you will become destitute. And then let's cut to Genesis 50, which is 17 years later after this meeting. Okay, 17 years has gone by. Jacob and all of his Sons and grandchildren and great-grandchildren have come to Egypt and they're living in the land of Goshen. But now, Jacob has died. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. Please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. That's putting a spin on it, right? When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. 
for 17 years. The saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Jesus said it this way in what we call the Lord's Prayer, but actually is the disciples' prayer. I mean, Jesus didn't pray this. He asked His disciples to pray this. And I took this from the New Living Translation so it looks a little bit different than we normally see it. I thought that'd be good. Pray like this, Jesus said. Our Father in heaven, may Your name be kept holy. May Your kingdom come soon. May Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food that we need. And forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, Jesus decided to take that one bit out of the prayer. He had just got done teaching them how to pray and reinforced it a second time with these words. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive you. If I could take a bony finger and put it inside each one of your faces... I would do so. And, but you might say to me, but wait a minute, Mike. Isn't God's forgiveness free? Isn't Jesus here? Is He asking us to earn our salvation by forgiving people who harm us? That doesn't seem right. And the answer is, yes, God's grace is free. You see, Jesus didn't say this just once. Jesus said this many times. Sometimes He used stories to tell the story of this. So it's not just like some scribal error or Jesus having a bad day. This is the way it is. You see, God's grace is free, but it is devastating. Let me repeat that. God's grace is free, but it's devastating. When God's grace and mercy comes into our life, it does not leave us the way that we are. It changes us. And one of the first things it changes is that God's grace gives us the power to forgive people. By forgiving people, we are proving that God's grace has actually come into our lives. If you refuse to forgive those who harm you, you are showing that you really have not accepted the forgiveness that God, through Christ and His death on the cross, extends to you. So thus, you never had it to begin with. Christians forgive. That's one of the marks of being a Christian. When we refuse to forgive, we allow the sin that was committed against us to hurt us twice. Once when we were first sinned against, and then again by keeping us from receiving God's forgiveness. We need to stop the pain that's been inflicted upon us 
and forgive. Break the chain. I think one of the best vignettes I've ever read is by a woman named Sherry Mitchell. And and she said this about what forgiveness is. I thought this was great. Think of your situation as a court case. You are the plaintiff and the prosecuting attorney. In other words, you're the one that's been wronged. You've brought the lawsuit, and you're also your own prosecuting attorney. The person who wronged you is a defendant. You've done a phenomenal job of compiling your briefs. For your day in court, you come in with so much legal documentation in tow that it must be brought in by not one, not two, but by three dollies. You are fierce. And everybody, including you, knows it. The judge enters. He takes his seat at the bench. He calls the court into session. And he begins by asking you to start your opening arguments. You take a deep breath, but to everybody's amazement, you wheel all of your files, every scrap of evidence you've amassed, your entire brief, you plop it onto the judge's desk. You just pile it until you can't even see the judge anymore. And once you've placed all your evidence of how you've been wronged on the judge's bench, you turn around and you walk out of the courtroom. That's forgiveness. You take your entire case, and the Lord knows you have one, against your offender, and you leave it all for the judge to rule on, trusting that the judge knows everything, that he's not only just and righteous, but he's kind and benevolent. You know that he will rule perfectly in this matter, And because you've decided in the front end that you will accept whatever ruling is handed down, you are free to go and live your life in peace. If you're struggling with unforgiveness about anything or with anybody, I beg you, please, that today, like this evening, you take all of your files, you take all of your evidence, all your prepared speeches, and you leave them on the judge's bench. And as the Sunday school teacher said to their Sunday school class, who is the judge, children? The answer is Jesus. Very good. As often as you want to go back and grab some of those files, I'd like you just to picture yourself in that courtroom, placing everything on the judge's bench, turning around, walking out, and catching a little smile out of the corner of your eye from the judge who is nodding in approval, proud of your determination to trust in him. Philip Yancey, an author who lives right up in Evergreen, says, At last I understood, in the final analysis, forgiveness is an act of faith. By forgiving another, I am trusting that God is a better justice maker than I am. By forgiving, I release my own right to get even and leave all issues of fairness for God to work out 
I leave in God's hands the scales that must balance justice and mercy. There are really only three options for responding to a personal injury that we did not deserve. You can be in denial. You can look out and seek vengeance. Or you can go to forgiveness. Denial might be the, uh, the flight reflex. It appears to be a peaceable option, but all it means is that this thing just continues to eat away at us and we're just ignoring it. Vengeance would be the flight response, the fight response, excuse me, the fight response. And at least in vengeance, you, you realize that you've been hurt unjustly and that something is out of whack, but vengeance thinks that the way to make it right is to get even. But vengeance has never, ever made things even. Now you follow an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which, by the way, was a restriction because, you know, you rape my sister and I will kill all the men in your town. That's the way things used to work. That's in Genesis 2, just in case. That's in Genesis also, in case you want to read about that story. And the sons of Jacob. So, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a restriction. But even an eye for an eye. And pretty soon the whole world is blind. So forgiving seems to be the only option that makes any logical sense, any spiritual sense, any peaceful progress. Forgiving is being honest about what happened. I mean, forgiveness is not just some kind of pious self-deception. It's looking at what happened to you square in the ugly face and realizing how bad it was. Forgiveness is honest. I wanted that guy to know exactly how he had hurt me before I forgave him. Because I wanted to forgive completely. Forgiving requires a bright light, not an airbrush, to cover it up. You can't forgive until you felt the pain of the offense. You have to acknowledge the pain. Number two, forgiveness uh, restores our sight so that we can see that no matter how weak, mean, or guilty, someone is of hurting us, they are still human and are still made in God's image. Because we vilify the people who have hurt us. They cease to be human. That makes it easier not to forgive. 
makes it easier to hold a grudge. Forgiveness restores our sight. Forgiving doesn't guarantee a happy ending. In other words, it may not include reconciliation. It may just be forgiving. I mean, sometimes the person may be dead that you've got to forgive. Nothing's going to change. At least not in this life. But it opens up a possibility for things to be better in the future than it ever could have been if we held on to our bitterness and our anger. Forgiving won't guarantee your rightness. You must remember that you might have been wrong. This is really difficult. Forgiveness, forgiving someone does not guarantee that you were right in holding a grudge. That you saw the thing from the proper perspective. Posted a cartoon on Instagram last week. Is this rhinoceros who was painting portraits. And, you know, every painting that was hanging up on his wall had this horn, like, sticking up in the middle of the canvas. <laughs> you can't get away from your own perspective. you got to acknowledge that maybe you didn't see things correctly. So don't rush to blame. What if the person that you're forgiving doesn't repent? What if they're legitimately wrong and they don't, for, they don't repent? How do you forgive people who don't say they're sorry? Let me give you a few reasons not to forgive people who do not say they're sorry. Number one, you might say to yourself, well, if a person who wrongs me does not repent, then he or she doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Well, you're missing the point. Forgiveness is never deserved. Forgiveness is only for people who don't deserve it. There's no such thing as a right to be forgiven. As a matter of fact, if you were a person who deserved forgiveness, then you probably wouldn't need any. Forgiveness flows from what theologians call mercy, all right, and grace. When you throw yourself on the mercy of the court, you're guilty. You're just asking for a reduced sentence because you know you're guilty. That's mercy. You don't deserve the mercy of the court. You deserve a 30-year sentence. Mercy would be five years with five probation, or something like that. Nobody deserves to be forgiven. Another reason that you might say to yourself why you don't have to forgive somebody who is not repentant is uh, it's just too hard to do. 
Well, my reply to this would be, why do you want to live in the pain? Because if you don't forgive that person, you're always linked to them by a chain. You are not forgiving that person. You always not forgive that person. That person's always in the back of your mind, always in your nightmares, whatever. Always you're linked to that person. Why don't you break the chain by forgiving that person and set yourself free? There's something in it for you. If you say, well, it's not fair, I would say, is it fair to you for your spirit to start shriveling up, becoming that kind of person as you grow older? Nobody wants to be that kind of person. Well, yeah, but, but if I forgive the person who's not repentant, then what if he feels no sorrow and so he might do it again? Look, forgiveness does not mean tolerance. If you're forgiving somebody for hurting you, it doesn't mean you're going to get yourself close to that person to be hurt again. I mean, if you're, if you're sitting at scum and you've got your backpack next to you on the chair and the person on the other side of the backpack reaches in and steals something from you, you can forgive that person for stealing from you, but that doesn't mean you have to put your backpack right next to him again. You put it on the other side. Well, what about the Bible saying, Mike, that we've got to repent before we're forgiven? Because, you know, when St. Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 2, he said, repent and be baptized so that your sins will be forgiven. And I want to say, it's clear that when we're dealing with God, God has the right to require repentance. All right, God has that right because He is God. Because when God, God doesn't want to forgive you, He wants to have a union relationship with you at the same time. And if you don't repent, that relationship isn't going to happen. So sometimes God requires repentance. Now, let me give you a little insight into what happens when you come to Jesus. Even if God requires you to repent of some of your sins, there's a whole lot of sins He's not even touching. I mean, if God wanted to list your sins the moment of your conversion, you'd probably be reduced to a heap of ashes. I mean, there are so many things that I was doing wrong or not doing what was right when I came to Christ at 18 years old. So many things. Did God ask me to change all of them? No. What was Jesus saying from the cross as He was being crucified for our sins? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. So God can require repentance from you for your own good. But trust me, He's merciful. He's kind. 
He understands timelines. He's got a growth curve for you to go on. And you're not going to be repenting for everything at the same time. He wants union with you. So, you don't have to put up with it. Forgiving starts out on the premise that some things are intolerable and that nobody should tolerate them. They violate some law of life. Otherwise, they wouldn't need forgiveness. It is precisely because these things are intolerable that such a radical remedy like forgiving had to be found out for them. But forgiving a, a wrong does not make that wrong tolerable. It does not mean that you have to put up with it. How often do you need to forgive? <laughs> I think Jesus put a number on it. When Peter said, Lord, how, how often should I forgive? Seven times? And Jesus says, oh, <clears throat> more like 70 times seven times? And that might be daily. Here's the deal. Forgiveness comes in layers. It comes in stages. I can only forgive as deeply as I felt my pain. And some of the pain I am frankly shielding myself from. I'm in denial about the pain because it just hurts too much. But as I mature, as I get older, God's got me on a growth curve. And he starts to reveal, this is how you were hurt. Even more deeply than you thought. And then I have to forgive all over again. It's like going up to a window in your house that you've cleaned. And you go, man, where did all these streaks come from and all this dirt? I thought I cleaned that window. And of course... Your task is to clean it all over again. One friend of mine who had a horrific upbringing with an abusive father, physically abusive, he told me this. He said, Mike, I thought I'd forgiven my dad until I had kids of my own. And then I thought, how could he have done that? And then I had to forgive my dad all over again. When he realized the kind of love that was welling up in his soul for his children as he raised them, he thought, how big of a monster was my father? That he could not feel this natural, beautiful affection that I feel for my sons. As I said before, forgiving is not about staying with people who are hurting us. It's not saying that that was okay. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. And what if we're not sure we have forgiven someone? I, 
I think this is where the body of Christ comes into play, where pastoral relationships come into play. I mean, talk to people. Be patient. Explore the hurt. You can't forgive until you felt the pain. Be patient. Expect relapses. You can allow anger, but don't allow hatred. Ask for help. Forgiveness is where, where judgment and mercy come together. You've got to hold the tension of a God of judgment and a God of mercy. You've got to somehow be okay with holding the view of a God who loves and a God who is righteous. Keep faith in Him. I'll close with this story. Her name was 66730. Or at least that was the name she went by. Her father had died in a German concentration camp, as did her beloved sister. Her freedom, her dignity, her humanity had been stripped away by those who imprisoned her, and yet she survived. They had robbed her of everything she ever possessed, but they couldn't rob her of the one who possessed her, Jesus. She saw every day in Ravensbrück, the Nazi concentration camp, as a chance to minister to someone more needy than herself. And then one day she was released. As suddenly as she had become a prisoner, she was freed by a clerical error. And her solitary aim was to minister to others. When the war was over, she began traveling and speaking, sharing her Savior and the vision that He had given her. And then one day something happened, something that shook her to the very center of her being. You probably wouldn't know her as 66730. You would be more apt to know her as Corey Ten Boom. She says, and I quote, I was at a church service in Munich when I saw him, the former SS guard, who had stood at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of women's clothing, my sister Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed silently, forgive me and help me to forgive him. 
I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that this world's healing hinges, but on His, that of Jesus. When He tells us to love our enemies, He gives along with the command the love itself. And so my closing question for you is, whom is Jesus asking you to forgive tonight? Let's say a prayer to at least begin that process in your heart. Because soon we're going to remember what Jesus did for all of us by taking communion when He suffered for the sins of the whole world and forgave us. Lord Jesus, we come before You knowing that to err is human and to sin is divine. It is not without Your help that we can do any of these things. We need Your love, Jesus, for the people that have wronged us. We need Your peace in knowing that You'll take care of it. You'll be the judge, not us. Vengeance is Yours, You say. I will repay. Lord, we leave that person in Your hands, those people in Your hands. But as for us, we thank You for the forgiveness You have shown us through Your death on the cross, Lord Jesus. Amen.